Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. So, full confession time. I am not a Bay Area native. But once I was here for good, friends made sure that I got to experience some of the more iconic things the area is known for. Wine tastings in Napa and Sonoma County, checking out the Winchester House in San Jose, catching a Giants game at Oracle Park, driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, going on a tour at Alcatraz. But it wasn't until I would drive the streets of San Francisco on a regular basis for KCBS that I became aware, truly, of another iconic part of anyone's life in the city by the bay. And that's the Ferry Building. Now, its history is long and large. It's seen millions of people come and go a stately sort of sentry standing guard as times changed, as the city itself changed. But the ferry building, even over a hundred years later, remains a constant. Why is that? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Mary Hughes. And to help us take a closer look at at least some of the Ferry Building's past and its future, I'm joined by John King, urban design critic at the San Francisco Chronicle and the author of the new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. John, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I say in that uh, introduction of you, some of the ferry buildings past because there's so much that we could get into, but uh, there's a, a comment in the opening where you mentioned that the, the ferry building was deliberately placed at the point where San Francisco met the harbor, that that was like the city's reason for existence. Um, let's... Let's start there if we can. You know, what was 
San Francisco as a place at that point in time? And how vital was it uh, when the ferry building actually came into being? San Francisco in the 1890s was one of the 10 largest cities in the nation in terms of population. And unlike the other ones, it had not really existed 50 years before that. It was this sleepy hamlet with a few hundred residents on a sandy cove in a nice big harbor. Then the gold rush hits, California explodes, and you have hundreds of thousands of people coming in. And essentially, uh, San Francisco became a gigantic Wild West town with all sorts of mayhem going on. It periodically would burn down. There were earthquakes, but not like the one in 1906. And as the gold rush faded, as the silver rush in Nevada faded, and, and San Francisco was kind of the port of call, you started having civic leaders start to emerge who really wanted this not to be seen as this crazy boomtown far away, but as a big, legitimate, major American and even global city. And what you had then was the idea that you need to have a strong point of entry, a very grand, impressive portal. You know, there had been ferry service from across the bay dating back to about 1853 and at first it was scattered on a bunch of docks and then it was a very humble little thing north of the current location and what you had with the decision to build what we see today was we need something magisterial and so the city first of all it was owned by the state that's a whole other story but state voters agreed in 1891, very narrowly, to allow construction of a terminus at San Francisco of the big ferry depot. And then architect A. Page Brown was hired, who was a very well-connected and very young local architect. And the idea was build something like you would see on the East Coast. Build something that is the measure of all the grand railroad terminals that people at the time were kind of looking at as 19th century cathedrals. And so that's where it came from. Well, and I mean, obviously, you know, people have their image of the ferry building here in the past, you know, 10, 20 years of, of what it looks like to them and what it seems like. But back then, um, just from what I've read in your book and what you were saying just now, you know, th this was this epic undertaking that was meant to really represent you know, an image of San Francisco. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, you know, it didn't need the clock tower. The clock tower doesn't so much exist for the clock, but just to have a cathedral-like summit on the waterfront. You know, that's one reason the building remained prominent through all the worst and most bedraggled episodes of its history was the separation from the rest of the tall city, so to speak, gave it a prominence. It was never the tallest building in the city. And it, it came in like just second when it opened and it was quickly surpassed, but it's always stood there with nothing around it. I think something that maybe we do not think about here in modern times was, you know, it was a port of entry for mm -hmm. so many people. 
And when the automobile came along, it sort of threw the ferry building into uh, really a, a long time of doubt as to what it's supposed to be and what it's there for. Honestly, what got me interested in doing this book, because I've written about the ferry building since before it reopened in 2003, I became so fascinated about the period. It was 50 years where this thing was sitting on the waterfront. Nobody knew what to do with it. There was a push to tear it down after World War II that all of officialdom loved because it was going to put something big and modern and new on the waterfront. And people didn't really object to it because after World War II, the whole idea was we need a big modern city. And it just kind of died because it was an unwieldy concept. And then there were uh, the Embarcadero Freeway got built, which you know, for 30 years literally severed a mile of the waterfront from the rest of the city. And so the ferry building had a double deck concrete viaduct pushing within a hundred or so feet of it. Uh, you, know, you just had this period where it just really languished because everybody wanted to drive a car who wanted to be in an old boat and you had to you know, kind of wait for the schedule. It was all about convenience in the automobile. And there was no reason for the building even existing in some ways. Well, and it kind of comes up throughout the book. I sort of felt, you know, and and obviously I feel like this is something we can get into on a much deeper level as the conversation goes on. But just to sort of touch on it, this idea of nobody knew what to do with the ferry building, but nobody wanted to let go of the ferry mm -hmm. building either. <laughs> right, right. That's very true. And that's one of the things that fascinated me is that the building began as this symbol of the city, the embodiment of modern day San Francisco, albeit modern day being like 1902. And then it became a symbol of another sort, which is this building represents the texture of the city that is imperiled. We don't want San Francisco to become an interchangeable American metropolis. And we have to save it and we have to find some way to revive it because this building symbolizes that we want to be a big city built on its past. Well, and you, you of course, you, you speak of other cities in this book. You touch on the changes that are seen, you know, happening in New York, happening in Boston, um, and how cities have to evolve. And, and the, you know, the ferry building is this great representation of how cities evolve and change and grow and, and how can we keep the past mm -hmm. with us, even as we move forward. Um, and, you know, a lot of people tried to figure out ways to do that in, in ways that were design oriented. And I would be remiss, uh, since you are an urban design critic, to not kind of mm -hmm. look at the ferry building itself. Um, you know, we, we just spoke moments ago about what it was supposed to look like and to emulate when it was first uh, built. But so many people tried to come up with new ways of the ferry building looking, and it never kind of took um, until much later. Right. Uh, you know, let, can we talk a little bit about the design evolution of the of the ferry building? Oh, absolutely. The building is an elongated three story base with you know a two hundred and fifty foot clock tower on top, and the reason for that long linear 
form is that it was a terminal. In the ferry building's transportation height, when it was really essential to the city and the region getting from point A to point B, it was not a question of you went to the ferry building and then you went in back and stood waiting for the ferry like you do today. The building had gates extending out from it into the water. You know, think of like gates at an airport, you know, these things sticking out and then that's where the vehicle pulls in and you walk directly from that into the vehicle. You never leave. And so that's what it was like. It very functional. Most of the space, you know, you, you go to the marketplace today and it has this very atmospheric look to it. That's all a creation. That's a work of fiction. I mean, what was down there were baggage areas, a post office, some very kind of basic waiting gates. The cool ones were all upstairs. You know, so it wasn't that much to be in at the bottom. And then the clock tower was, mir was mirrored on a cathedral in Spain, although, you know, it looks a lot like tall religious buildings or clock towers throughout Europe. I mean, it was not unique in any way, the design. But so you had this very functional base, and then you had this very aspirational top, and you still do, which is one of the great things. We'll be right back on KCBS Radio's In-Depth. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Well, it, it's definitely what stands out. Um, as I said earlier, you know, I, I'm not from the Bay Area, but once I was on the Embarcadero, you know, almost four days a week, it it, it felt like this reliable um, vision ahead of me. Every time I would pass by it, I was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. life is still going on as normal because the ferry building's there. Absolutely. You know, and... It, it went through a, a a time where people were unsure about what to do with it. Like I said, they they wanted it around, but they didn't know what to do <laughs> in the ferry building. And then we did enter a period not that long ago, really, um, where where there was a, a group of designers, architects, um, people who really did have a vision and wanted to transform the ferry building into what it has become today for many people. What was that transition like to, to like finally have a, a clear idea of what they wanted to do with this space? Yeah, the development team and architectural team that you know conceived what is today's ferry building, and, and now we're going back to the late 1990s, they were very smart. I mean, they loved the building. And by then the civic expectations had been raised. 
At one time, preserving the ferry building meant we'll take the base off of it, but leave the tower. And then at another point, it was we'll keep the front facade in the tower and we'll hollow out everything inside it and essentially build a new building behind that facade. And what you had in the late 90s was a few basic realizations that all clicked. One was the notion of authenticity has to be more than a veneer. It's not enough to have a cool looking facade facing the city with the arches and you know the granite and our Calusa sandstone and things like that, and then walk into a standard American shopping mall, which was a proposal a decade before. It had to feel authentic each step you took. The other thing, and this was very much a business idea, was authenticity includes what are we offering? In other words, you, you had a place like Ghirardelli Square, which was very much the place to go in the 60s. And it was a festival marketplace before there was the term festival marketplaces. But it pretty quickly filled up with kind of tourist type tchotchkes. And there was a Harley Davidson store in there at one point, And there was a Bing Crosby's 3D San Francisco, some bizarre presentation I had hoped to find on YouTube, but could never track it down. That was and, a fascinating part of that, by the way. Yeah, it's, it, where even Herb Cain's like, I have no idea what this thing is. Um, but so the idea of the ferry building that we have is very much what is authentic about the Bay Area? Well, at that time, the whole food scene and the whole notion of artisanal food, the Chez Panisse idea of California cuisine. And to their credit, the developers, you know, egged on by some very smart architects, you know, found local restaurants, found local vendors, worked really hard to make sure that the Ferry Plaza Farmers Market got set up and got established. So it wasn't just a question of, oh, look, here's a cool old building, we'll go take a look at it. But it was this building in some ways really captures the moment in San Francisco and Bay Area. And I argue that it has done a pretty good job doing that ever since. I mean, there's been lots of grumbling and controversy about various tenants or whatever. But on the whole, it kind of catches, you know, now you go and there's Senior Seasig and there's Humphrey Slocum ice cream. I mean, now it's kind of, we want to show the neighborhood diversity of restaurants and food purveyors and things. Whereas before it was, how many people can we get with you know, job experience that includes Chez Panisse? Right, right. It, it, showing that it can continue to to grow and, exactly. and to move with with the times there and in that portion of the book there was this quote that really stood out to me so when they were approaching uh people to to come and be a part of the new ferry building uh one of the things that they said was we're creating a house mm -hmm. and that really struck a chord with me because isn't that kind of how we look at the ferry building it's a part of our home right you know and it's a symbol of home and no one ever wants to to lose that 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 beacon that kind of calls out to you and so that really just stood out as a not only could that attract people to want to be involved and to be a part of it but 
it kind of symbolizes the bigger view of what the ferry building means to so many people. I think that's true. And I think that's what's helped it stay relevant. I mean, you can definitely take pot shots at some of the tenants and the air of preciousness in some ways, but that's part of San Francisco and the home. You know, it, it, it captures that. And, you know, I definitely would mix my tent. I would mix the tenants up if I could, but you know, it, it works very well. Well, and you know, Again, as you're saying, uh, there there can be some pot shots taken. Um, I, I know that there's, you know, mention of just sort of this uh, uh, bougie kind of attitude <laughs> that can be found. Um, and, you know, and and I, I, there's merit to the to to that to a degree, I think. Um, but I I want to believe that it will keep moving in the direction that represents as much of San Francisco, all of San Francisco uh and and the bay area to a great degree uh as as possible um but there are bigger concerns more tangible nature-based concerns that um has become a conversation that we we all seem to be having one way or the other when we are talking about how our infrastructure can stand up to climate change uh, we we talk about it a lot when we're talking about wildfires, uh, when we talk about how buildings can handle you know flooding or stronger earthquakes, and the ferry building is very much at the front of this conversation because it is right there by water that keeps getting higher. Definitely, I mean already, you know the king tides in the winter, you know like for about once a month every three months where there are unusually high tides. In the right conditions, you will have water lap up, not onto the walkway along the ferry building, but south of the ferry building near uh, Pier 14, the real nice pedestrian pier that goes out, and then just to the north around Pier 5, water will swell up and over, you know, it, it swells up onto the shoreline promenade even now. I mean, it's in kind of a cool way. It's not like a sneaker wave that's going to pull you off it's more like whoa my shoes just got wet this is cool but you know you look at the projections and then you all you know the the ferry building where it's located has a few feet to spare but if the average tides in the bay go up a few feet as is projected looking towards centuries end and then you add a big storm in certain times of the year you would have water if if this was to happen tomorrow you would have water rushing past the book passage and spilling onto the floor of hog island oyster house and you know lapping down the embarcadero i mean there's not much wiggle room along the embarcadero and there's going to be a huge enormous challenge for the city just to figure out how to deal with that and how to accommodate how do you accommodate the future without walling off the notion of what the city is? Because San Francisco, in so many ways, is defined by the waterfront. And you don't want to have a levee built that's 10 feet high that you know protects the Embarcadero, except you can't see the bay from the Embarcadero. You mentioned in the book that one theory was to actually like lift the ferry building and and move it, mm -hmm. which in my mind seems impossible. But you know, there are there are 
ways and paths that people are looking at to, to try to stave this off. The Port of San Francisco is doing a big study right now on the feasibility of raising the ferry building, not as a one-off project, but there is a work with the Army Corps of Engineers, which is very much going to be moving into the public eye in the next few months of how do we deal with the whole San Francisco waterfront. The port is looking at how do we deal with the Embarcadero? And well, the ferry building's the centerpiece of the Embarcadero. Realistically, what could we do? Structurally, would it be feasible to jack the ferry building up a few feet? If it is feasible structurally, would it work in any sort of economic sense? I mean, if you were to say, yes, we can do this and it cost $100 billion, then the city would be in a quandary. You know? So, that, so it, there's so much complexity to what lies ahead that it is very daunting. Yeah, yeah. It, financially and in just the practice itself, you know, once again, the, the ferry building is is at the center of the the changing of t of time and how do we keep it how do we keep it uh with us in a way that can work for the building itself and and for what it means to everyone uh it'll be interesting to see what the next hundred years hold <laughs> um when it when it comes to this building you went into so many paths in writing this book and in delving into the history of this building and, and really the history of the city of San Francisco, you know, what does the ferry building mean to you? Well, I think what it means, to me, it offers a sense of reassurance. It suggests a city that has a location that allows you to connect with nature in ways that few cities do. And it allows you a number of choices in how to do that. It can be the whole fancy way, um, but it can also just be sitting on one of the benches right by the water, you know, sitting on this nice promenade that didn't exist until the ferry building project took place that opened in 2003. But it also, I just love the idea of the connections that are possible, the visual connections, the ways you can get there, you can take the ferry, you can drive, you can walk, you can bicycle. You know, there's no shortage of ways to get there. So I think that even with the bougie aspects and all, it represents a vision of cities growing and adapting, but not losing themselves along the way. And that's difficult for any city. In odd ways, it's especially difficult for prosperous cities. And San Francisco has been wrestling with this for decades. What do you see the future? Like, what, what do you hope the future of the ferry building looks like if you had to, if you had to give it a vision? Well, I, I have just, <laughs> I have just written a large piece on the whole sea level rise challenge. So I am daunted. I've used the word daunting already, but I have no idea what the future holds in terms of how do you adapt the Embarcadero. But the vision I'd like to see for the ferry building is something that adjusts to coming changes. And it does so in a way that doesn't worship the past at the expense of the future, but also realizes that the past is essential to the future. In other words, 
it will have changes. The changes may look, may change aspects of how the building looks and feels and works. But at the same time, the building will always have a sense of this is what it was and this is how we got where we are, which is what I really love about the ferry building. It just shows us how we got where we are. And also that somehow economically, there's the ability and the demand that the building not just become a citadel of the best off, but it still has connections to a broader public, not just various price points, but also the different things that are there. So that it will have a little bit of a city sense of you can encounter anything while you're there, which in San Francisco of late has been stressed in a negative way, but there's such a positive aspect to the unexpected. And, and that's what I want to make sure the ferry building keeps. That was John King, urban design critic at the San Francisco Chronicle and author of Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. You can find this episode and past episodes of In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com. You can also hear the episodes on the Odyssey app. Download the app on your smartphone and favorite KCBS radio. Thanks for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Mary Hughes. been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.